Chapter 16, Part 1 of 2 of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wyke. Section 27. Chapter 16. The election over, Minister Lincoln scarcely had time enough to take a breath until another campaign, and one equally trying, so far as a test of his constitution and nerves, was concerned, as the one through which he had just passed, opened up before him. I refer to the siege of the cabinet-makers and office-seekers. It proved to be a severe and protracted strain, and one from which there seemed to be no relief, as the president-elect of this renowned democratic government is by custom and precedent expected to meet and listen to everybody who calls to see him individuals deputations and delegations says one of mr lincoln's biographers from all quarters pressed in upon him in a manner that might have killed a man of less robust constitution the hotels of springfield were filled with gentlemen who came with light baggage and heavy schemes the party had never been in office a clean sweep of the inns was expected and all the outs were patriotically anxious to take the vacant places. It was a party that had never fed, and it was voraciously hungry. Mr. Lincoln and Artemis Ward saw a great deal of fun in it, and in all human probability it was the fun alone that enabled Mr. Lincoln to bear it. His own election, of course, disposed of any claims illinois might have had to any further representation in the cabinet but it afforded mr lincoln no relief from the argumentative interviews and pressing claims of the endless list of ambitious statesmen in the thirty-two other states who swarmed into springfield from every point of the compass he told each one of them a story and even if he failed to put their names on his slate they went away without knowing that fact, and never forgot the visit. A newspaper correspondent, who had been sent down from Chicago to write up Mr. Lincoln, soon after his nomination, was kind enough several years ago to furnish me with an account of his visit. As some of his reminiscences are more or less interesting, I take the liberty of inserting a portion of his letter. Quote, a whatnot in the corner of the room, he relates, was laden with various kinds of shells. Taking one in my hand, I said, This, I suppose, is called a trochus by the geologist or naturalist. Mr. Lincoln paused a moment, as if reflecting, and then replied, I do not know, for I never studied either geology or natural history. I then took to examining the few pictures that hung on the walls, and was paying more than ordinary attention to one that hung above the sofa. He was immediately at my left, and pointing to it, said, That picture gives a very fair representation of my homely face. 
the time for my departure nearing i made the usual apologies and started to go you cannot get out of the town before quarter past eleven remonstrated mr lincoln and you may as well stay a little longer under pretense of some unfinished matters downtown however i very reluctantly withdrew from the mansion well said mr lincoln as we passed into the hall suppose you come over to the state house before you start for chicago after a moment's deliberation i promised to do so mr lincoln following without his hat and continuing the conversation shook hands across the gate saying now come over i wended my way to my hotel and after a brief period was in his office at the state house resulting conversation he said if the man comes with the key before you go i want to give you a book i certainly hoped the man would come with the key some conversation had taken place at the house on which his book treated but i had forgotten this and soon mr lincoln absented himself for perhaps two minutes and returned with a copy of the debates between himself and judge douglas he placed the book on his knee as he sat back on two legs of his chair and wrote on the fly-leaf j s bliss from a lincoln besides this he marked a complete paragraph near the middle of the book while sitting in the position described little willie his son came in and begged his father for twenty-five cents my son said the father what do you want with twenty-five cents i want it to buy candy with cried the boy i cannot give you twenty-five cents my son but i will give you five cents at the same time putting his thumb and finger into his vest pocket and taking therefrom five cents in silver which he placed upon the desk before the boy but this did not reach willie's expectations he scorned the pile and turning away clambered downstairs and through the spacious halls of the capitol leaving behind him his five cents and a distinct reverberation of sound mr lincoln turned to me and said he'll be back after that in a few minutes why do you think so said i because as soon as he finds i will give him no more he will come and get it after the matter had been nearly forgotten and conversation had turned in an entirely different channel willie came cautiously in behind my chair and that of his father picked up the specie and went away without saying a word. J. S. Bliss, letter, January twenty ninth, eighteen sixty seven, manuscript. He had a way of pretending to assure his visitor that in the choice of his advisers he was free to act as his judgment dictated, although David Davis, acting as his manager at the Chicago Convention, had negotiated with the Indiana and Pennsylvania delegations, and assigned places in the cabinet to Simon Cameron and Caleb Smith, besides making other arrangements which Mr. Lincoln was expected to ratify. Of this he was undoubtedly aware, although in answer to a letter from Joshua R. Giddings of Ohio, congratulating him on his nomination, he said, it is indeed most grateful to my feelings that the responsible position assigned me comes without conditions out of regard to the dignity of the exalted station he was about to occupy 
he was not as free in discussing the matter of his probable appointments with some of his personal friends as they had believed he would be. In one or two instances, I remember, the latter were offended at his seeming disregard of the claims of old friendship. My advice was not asked for on such grave subjects, nor had I any right or reason to believe it would be. Hence I never felt slighted or offended. On some occasions in our office, when Mr. Lincoln had come across from the State House for a rest or a chat with me, he would relate now and then some circumstance, generally an amusing one, connected with the settlement of the cabinet problem, but it was said in such a way that one would not have felt free to interrogate him about his plans. Soon after his election, I received from my friend Joseph Medill of Chicago a letter which argued strongly against the appointment of Simon Cameron to a place in the cabinet, and which the writer desired I should bring to Mr. Lincoln's attention. I awaited a favorable opportunity, and one evening when we were alone in our office, I gave it to him. It was an eloquent protest against the appointment of a corrupt and debased man, and coming from the source it did, the writer being one of Lincoln's best newspaper supporters, made a deep impression on him. Lincoln read it over several times, but refrained from expressing any opinion. He did say, however, that he felt himself under no promise or obligation to appoint anyone, that if his friends made any agreements for him, they did so over his expressed direction and without his knowledge. At another time he said that he wanted to give the South, by way of placation, a place in his cabinet, that a fair division of the country entitled the southern states to a reasonable representation there, and if not interfered with, he would make such a distribution as would satisfy all persons interested. He named three persons who would be acceptable to him. They were Botts of Virginia, Stevens of Georgia, and Maynard of Tennessee. He apprehended no such grave danger to the Union as the mass of people supposed would result from Southern threats, and said he could not in his heart believe that the South designed the overthrow of the government. This is the extent of my conversation about the cabinet. Thurlow Weed, the veteran in journalism and politics, came out from New York and spent several days with Lincoln. He was not only the representative of Senator Seward, but rendered the president-elect signal service in the formation of his cabinet. In his autobiography, Mr. Weed relates numerous incidents of this visit. He was one day opposing the claims of Montgomery Blair, who aspired to a cabinet appointment, when Mr. Lincoln inquired of Weed whom he would recommend. Henry Winter Davis was the response. David Davis, I see, has been posting you up on this question, retorted Lincoln. He has Davis on the brain. I think Maryland must be a good state to move from. The president then told the story of a witness in court in a neighboring county, who, on being asked his age, replied, Sixty. Being satisfied he was much older, the question was repeated, and on receiving the same answer, the court admonished the witness, saying, The court knows you to be much older than sixty. Oh, I understand now, was the rejoinder. 
you are thinking of those ten years I spent on the eastern shore of Maryland. That was so much time lost, and don't count. Before Mr. Lincoln's departure from Springfield, people who knew him personally were frequently asked what sort of man he was. I received many letters, generally from the eastern states, showing that much doubt still existed in the minds of the people whether he would prove equal to the great task that lay in store for him. Among others who wrote me on the subject was the Honorable Henry Wilson, late Vice President of the United States, whom I had met during my visit to Washington in the spring of 1858. Two years after Mr. Lincoln's death, Mr. Wilson wrote me as follows. I have just finished reading your letter dated December 21, 1860, in answer to a letter of mine asking you to give me your opinion of the president just elected. In this letter to me, you say of Mr. Lincoln, what more than four years of observation confirmed. After stating that you had been his law partner for over eighteen years, and his most intimate and bosom friend all that time, you say, I know him better than he does himself. I know this seems a little strong, but I risk the assertion. Lincoln is a man of heart, as gentle as a woman's and as tender, but he has a will strong as iron. He therefore loves all mankind, hates slavery, and every form of despotism. But these together, love for the slave and a determination, a will, that justice, strong and unyielding, shall be done when he has the right to act, and you can form your own conclusion. Lincoln will fail here, namely, if a question of political economy, if any question comes up which is doubtful, questionable, which no man can demonstrate, then his friends can rule him. But when on justice, right, liberty, the government, the Constitution, and the Union, then you may all stand aside, he will rule then, and no man can move him. No set of men can do it. There is no fail here. This is Lincoln, and you may mark my prediction. You and I must keep the people right. God will keep Lincoln right. These words of yours made a deep impression upon my mind, and I came to love and trust him even before I saw him. After an acquaintance of more than four years, I found that your idea of him was in all respects correct, that he was the loving, tender, firm, and just man you represented him to be. While upon some questions in which moral elements did not so clearly enter, he was perhaps too easily influenced by others. Mr. Lincoln was a genuine Democrat in feelings, sentiments, and actions. How patiently and considerately he listened amid the terrible pressure of public affairs to the people who thronged his anteroom. I remember calling upon him one day during the war on pressing business. The anteroom was crowded with men and women seeking admission. He seemed oppressed, careworn, and weary. I said to him, Mr. President, you are too exhausted to see this throng waiting to see you. You will wear yourself out and ought not see these people today. He replied, with one of those smiles in which sadness seemed to mingle, they don't want much. 
they get but little, and I must see them. During the war his heart was oppressed and his life burdened with the conflict between the tenderness of his nature and what seemed to be the imperative demands of duty. In the darkest hours of the conflict, desertions from the army were frequent, and army officers urgently pressed the execution of the sentences of the law but it was with the greatest effort that he would bring himself to consent to the execution of the judgment of the military tribunals i remember calling early one sabbath morning with a wounded irish officer who came to washington to say that a soldier who had been sentenced to be shot in a day or two for desertion had fought gallantly by his side in battle i told mr lincoln we had come to ask him to pardon the poor soldier. After a few moments' reflection, he said, My officers tell me the good of the service demands the enforcement of the law, but it makes my heart ache to have the poor fellows shot. I will pardon this soldier, and then you will all join in blaming me for it. You censure me for granting pardons, and yet you all ask me to do so. I say again, no man had a more loving and tender nature than Mr. Lincoln. Before departing for Washington, Mr. Lincoln went to Chicago for a few days' stay, and there, by previous arrangement, met his old friend Joshua F. Speed. Both were accompanied by their wives, and while the latter were out shopping, the two husbands repaired to Speed's room at the hotel. For an hour or more, relates Speed, we lived over again the scenes of other days. Finally Lincoln threw himself on the bed and, fixing his eyes on a spot on the ceiling, asked me this question. Speed, what is your pecuniary condition? Are you rich or poor? I answered, addressing him by his new title, Mr. President, I think I can anticipate what you are going to say. I'll speak candidly to you on the subject. My pecuniary condition is satisfactory to me now. You will perhaps call it good. I do not think you have within your gift any office I could afford to take. Mr. Lincoln then proposed to make Guthrie of Kentucky Secretary of War, but did not want to write to him, ask me to feel of him. I did as requested, but the Kentucky statesman declined on the ground of his advanced age and consequent physical inability to fill the position. He gave substantial assurance of his loyal sentiments, however, and insisted that the Union should be preserved at all hazards. A lady called one day at the hotel where the Lincolns were stopping in Chicago to take Mrs. Lincoln out for a promenade or a drive. She was met in the parlor by Mr. Lincoln, who, after a hurried trip upstairs to ascertain the cause of the delay in his wife's appearance, returned with the report that she'll be down as soon as she has all her trotting harness on. Late in January, Mr. Lincoln informed me that he was ready to begin the preparation of his inaugural address. He had, aside from his law books and the few gilded volumes that ornamented the center table in his parlor at home, comparatively no library. 
he never seemed to care to own or collect books on the other hand i had a very respectable collection and was adding to it every day to my library lincoln very frequently had access when therefore he began on his inaugural speech he told me what works he intended to consult i looked for a long list but when he went over it i was greatly surprised he asked me to furnish him with henry clay's great speech delivered in eighteen fifty andrew jackson's proclamation against nullification and a copy of the constitution he afterwards called for webster's reply to hayne a speech which he read when he lived at new salem and which he always regarded as the grandest specimen of american oratory with these few volumes and no other sources of reference he locked himself up in a room upstairs over a store across the street from the state house and there cut off from all communication and intrusion he prepared the address though composed amid the unromantic surroundings of a dingy dusty and neglected back room the speech has become a memorable document posterity will assign to it a high rank among historical utterances and it will ever bear comparison with the efforts of washington jefferson adams or any that preceded its delivery from the steps of the national capital after mr lincoln's rise to national prominence and especially since his death i have often been asked if i did not write this or that paper for him if i did not prepare or help prepare some of his speeches i know that other and abler friends of lincoln have been asked the same question to people who made such inquiries i always responded you don't understand mr lincoln no man ever asked less aid than he his confidence in his own ability to meet the requirements of every hour was so marked that his friends never thought of tendering their aid and therefore no one could share his responsibilities i never wrote a line for him he never asked me to i was never conscious of having exerted any influence over him he often called out my views on some philosophical question simply because i was a fond student of philosophy and conceding that i had given the subject more attention than he he often asked as to the use of a word or the turn of a sentence but if i volunteered to recommend or even suggest a change of language which involved a change of sentiment i found him the most inflexible man i have ever seen i know it was the general impression in washington that i knew all about lincoln's plans and ideas but the truth is i knew nothing he never confided to me anything of his purposes david davis statement september twentieth eighteen sixty six one more duty an act of filial devotion remained to be done before abraham lincoln could announce his readiness to depart for the city of washington a place from which it was unfortunately decreed he should never return in the first week of february he slipped quietly away from springfield and rode to farmington in coles county where his aged stepmother was still living 
here in the little country village he met also the surviving members of the hanks and johnston families he visited the grave of his father old thomas lincoln which had been unmarked and neglected for almost a decade and left directions that a suitable stone should be placed there to mark the spot retracing his steps in the direction of springfield he stopped overnight in the town of charleston where he made a brief address recalling many of his boyhood exploits in the public hall in the audience were many persons who had known him first as the stalwart young ox driver when his father's family drove into illinois from southern indiana one man had brought with him a horse which the president-elect in the earlier days of his law practice had recovered for him in a replevin suit another one was able to recite from personal recollection the thrilling details of the famous wrestling match between lincoln the flatboatman in 1830 and daniel needham and all had some reminiscence of his early manhood to relate the separation from his stepmother was particularly touching lincoln's love for his second mother was a most filial and affectionate one his letters show that he regarded the relation truly as that of mother and son november fourth eighteen fifty one he writes her after the death of his father dear mother chapman tells me he wants you to go and live with him if i were you i would try it a while if you get tired of it as i think you will not you can return to your own home chapman feels very kindly to you and i have no doubt he will make your situation very pleasant sincerely your son a lincoln on the ninth of the same month he writes his stepbrother john d johnston if the land can be sold so that i can get three hundred dollars to put to interest for mother i will not object if she does not but before i will make a deed the money must be had or secured beyond all doubt at ten per cent the parting when the good old woman with tears streaming down her cheeks gave him a mother's benediction expressing the fear that his life might be taken by his enemies will never be forgotten by those who witnessed it deeply impressed by this farewell scene mr lincoln reluctantly withdrew from the circle of warm friends who crowded around him and filled with gloomy forebodings of the future returned to springfield the great questions of state having been pretty well settled in his own mind and a few days yet remaining before his final departure his neighbors and old friends called to take leave of him and pay their best respects many of these callers were from new salem where he had made his start in life and each one had some pleasant or amusing incident of earlier days to call up when they met hannah armstrong who had foxed his trousers with buckskin in the days when he served as surveyor under john calhoun and whose son lincoln had afterwards acquitted in the trial for murder at beardstown gave positive evidence of the interest she took in his continued rise in the world she bade him good-bye but was filled with a presentiment that she would never see him alive again hannah he said jovially if they do kill me i shall never die again 
Isaac Cogsdale, another New Salem pioneer, came, and to him Lincoln again admitted his love for the unfortunate Anne Rutledge. Cogsdale afterwards told me of this interview. It occurred late in the afternoon. Mr. Nicolay, the secretary, had gone home, and the throng of visitors had ceased for the day. Lincoln asked about all the early families of New Salem, calling up the peculiarities of each as he went over the list. Of the Rutledges, he said, I have loved the name of Rutledge to this day. I have kept my mind on their movements ever since. Of Anne he spoke with some feeling. I loved her dearly. She was a handsome girl, would have made a good, loving wife. She was natural and quite intellectual, though not highly educated. I did honestly and truly love the girl, and think often of her now. End of section 27 Recording by Bill Mosley, Bernardo, Texas, USA